welcome to the Orchid Praxis Podcast. I am Robbie Timmy, and I'm joined by James O'Farron. And today we're going to be doing episode 44, uh, continuing our series on the different epochs of history, talking about their effects, what happened in them, and why it's relevant to us. But first off, a little personal announcement. This is the first one we're recording since I got married. I got married by beautiful wife, Whitney, and now she is a teamy, and everything is awesome. Fantastic. <laughs> I happened to be there for the wedding. It was amazing. It was super cool. And then yeah. now I can't tease Robbie at being the uh, only single person on the podcast anymore. <laughs> this is fair. <laughs> so, we should, so we should have to I go back to... and revamp our, our episodes on marriage and uh, <laughs> like all, all of Robbie's newfound great experience and wisdom. Yes, my deep insights and wisdom into this married pro- marriage process. <laughs> <laughs> After no, what, with, a, uh, what is it, you've been like a month, month and a half? Yeah, a month and a half, I think. Yeah, something like that. Yep. Yep. Awesome. It's pretty good. You haven't killed each other yet, so that's good. Everything went well, yeah. I got to cut my uh, cut my donut cake with James's sword, so everything yes. is awesome. We I still tell people about that. Up. It was epic. It was amazing. <laughs> my sword's purpose has been fulfilled. <laughs> the prophecy has been fulfilled <laughs> uh for those of you who aren't on the loop on that one so when i got married ravi gave me a wedding sword which is the best wedding gift ever um but then carla wouldn't let me cut my cake with it which i was i've been grumpy about for the intervening four years <laughs> and so what i happened to have brought it down with me to show my siblings who are coming across they're also living in oklahoma and um happened to have it with me at the wedding reception. So Robbie settles over to me and goes, hey, do you have the sword? And I'm like, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally got to cut a, uh, well, cake. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be generous called cake. It, it was a donut, but it worked. Donuts are micro cakes, okay? Yeah, that works. Small so, personal cake. <laughs> we're done with ceremony, and that's what was important. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> that was fun yes very much so very 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 much so indeed yes so I, i've been i've been in uh conversation with one of our uh, faithful listeners uh, kate and uh, she made a suggestion to me over uh chat recently ravi which i hadn't actually mentioned to you yet uh, but she said she was listening to our last episode and said that um, if we had a t-shirt that says, be Constantine, not Diocletius, she would buy it. <laughs> and that, and that if we, that, we, we, not we might have to set up a merch store. <laughs> yeah, we will have to see what we can do. <laughs> yes. We've been doing this long enough and got enough of a listenership that, uh, and we, have, we say enough random off the wall, quotable <laughs> things, we could probably make a reasonable t-shirt line. So <laughs> yeah, just, you know, three or four t-shirts with some random catchphrases. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that would mean we have to get a logo, I suppose, or something. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to think about it. Yeah. Who knows? If, if you guys, if you guys think that we should do a merch store, give any ideas for that, uh, let us know. Let's just on Discord. We so are yeah. open to fan art. Yes. <laughs> that might be dangerous. Since since neither of us are all that artistically talented, any of us. We can hand it over to uh, Mid Journey or one of the AI generators to make some for us. True. <laughs> We'll figure Which, but that's out. that's foreshadowing. That, that's our next episode. Is talking about AI. So this episode, we're talking about the industrial revolution. It's a little bit before artificial intelligence. 
It's true. <laughs> so <laughs> moving back into the epochs, um, yeah. the next one we're going to cover is the Industrial Revolution. And again, like all epochs, it's kind of your starting it is arbitrary, but basically <laughs> start uh, with basically the invention of like the steam engine or the reinvention of it. The application of the steam engine into commercial enterprise, shall we say. <laughs> yes. Which 1765 or so. Uh, so if, you're, if your brain doesn't work on dates, think uh, Revolutionary War period. Just before yep. that, going all the way through to, oh, what? Early 1900s? Early 1900s, yeah, because you've got like two main industrial revolutions that people kind of classify. There's the coal one in 1765, right, right before the Revolutionary War. And then the second one was in 1870 for gas. Um, right. The, the internal combustion engine, that's where you get all the trains and the cowboys and all that kind of stuff. Um, weren't, weren't most trains coal or? Well, you get like more, you know, that, that, would, that would be, oh yeah, because the coal was, was more the trains earlier on, and then gas came in. Internal combustion would have been, would have been uh, more, early 1900s to World War II later? era. Yeah, yeah, Ford. Ford was Ford was the beginning of the commercialization, of the yeah, generalization of it. Yeah, because Model um, T was, was, a, was, a, was a big part of this in the early right. 1900s, 1908 or so. So, right. so world, it was the so, early cars and whatnot that built into it, and then you get into the cars. Right, because so you're still using steam engines in most trains. Yeah. Yep. And then, yeah, so probably this would go from Revolutionary War to roughly World War II. Roughly. World War II was kind of, yeah, where you're starting to transition over to the next stage. Yeah, the, the technology the digital revolutions were starting to happen ju just beginning to happen which some people classify the two digital revolutions um the two major ones uh, with nuclear engineering and um all that kind of stuff and computing uh, and the internet <laughs> and all that kind of stuff as industrial revolutions which they had industrial impact but they're not quite things have been industrialized already was kind of the thing this is the invention yes. of, of, in of industry <laughs> yes <laughs> kind of way that we're looking at this so we're, we'll be covering the digital revolutions in a separate section in our last episode of this series um, next month. So, <laughs> yes, but so starting, I guess, what is the industrial revolution? What do we? What was yep. the main overarching thing that we're using to tie this epoch together? <laughs> and what what made it an epoch too? Is like when you think of an epoch yes. in terms of something that's irreversible you can't turn progress back past this point in a sense like what was it introduced the world that you can't put back <laughs> right. what what got out of the box that you can't put back in again and there's three main qualities uh to it uh the first one is the invention of machines doing the work of hand tools so instead of thing, doing things by hand you're doing it with a machine um and then Part and parcel with that is the use of steam and later other kinds of power to run those machines, right? So mm -hmm. technically speaking, a um, a foot treadle sewing machine fits that first criteria, right? But you're still using human power to run it, right? Right. But then you add in later on, uh, you have other machines that don't use human power to work. And that's also part of this as a, as a separate innovation. 
And then the right. third component is the adoption of the factory system. And this is where we're talking about Model Ts with um, uh, Ford and all of them, but also it was leading into that, which really comes into the, this idea of standardization uh, that allowed mm -hmm. that. Which if I remember right, I could be wrong. Uh, don't quote me on this, but do research it. If I remember right, the first um, like, uh, manufacturer that invented the idea of standardized parts was the Colt pistol manufacturing this sounds correct yes yeah because <laughs> you could like so you, you you would you would break one cold pistol and you can go get another piece to replace the piece that broke and it would just plug in and fit it would it would right. work which is not a thing before that you would have to go forge or machine a new piece to replace mm -hmm. that because it wasn't standardized it was it wasn't um because everything well was custom made that. yeah each right. one was, was, was artisanally made right right each man, each musket or rifle was yep. made piece by piece by one craftsman. So he'd take the buttstock and he'd take the barrel and he'd fit them together and custom cut them to make them fit. And then this revolution was that, oh, if you got one Colt pistol and another Colt pistol, if one of them breaks, you can fix it from the other one. Or yep. Which made it very, which was especially good for militaries. And militaries oh, yeah. are still working on that now. There's a whole. There's been a whole thing about like ammunition, making sure your ammunition is the same. They try to make crossover calibers where you can carry the same ammo for your rifle as for your handgun. There's every all all the soldiers carry the same weapons so that anything can be fixed and it's all one training. It's all industrialized. <laughs> Much it, it it makes logistics way simpler. Um, oh yes, but it also allows for people to become interchangeable as well. Because if you're working on a factory line, and you're working standardized parts, the steps that go into making those parts are also now standardized. And so instead of having people making an individual mark on each piece of craftsmanship, that's actually not allowed. Like you're not, <laughs> that's a bad right. thing now all of a sudden. Now everybody needs to be doing things as similarly as possible, which leads into you know the foundations of a modern schooling system even where having a common core and everyone majoring up to the same tests and everybody going through the same education system, as opposed to mm -hmm. learning unique things to that particular person instead of everybody, all the people being standardized. So when you standardize the things you're making, you end up standardizing the people along with it. Yeah. Which is kind of the whole thing. So I guess we'll yep. circle back and then come back at that again. That's the general Indeed. direction we're going to. Yes. So, we're, we're, we're foreshadowing a little bit of some of, some of the, uh, we see some dark clouds on the horizon already. <laughs> I mean, everyone's like, wow, yes, the Dust Revolution, less people dying, people living longer. Um, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of really interesting statistics around that. Like, is that actually true? Sort of. There were some specific things that are coming into play that um, had dropped humans' lifespan just prior to that point, and we fixed a few of those things. Um, but... Uh, Ultimately, it actually actually increased our lifespan that much. Um, and most of it's just the averages um, because you didn't have, uh, mm -hmm. um, you, have you have more sanitary living conditions, which is, I think, relatively independent of the Industrial Revolution itself. But what was it? Sanitary yeah. living conditions and then, then like the invention of antibiotics, basically, like hard yeah, antibiotics. I think it was those two that really basically um, reduced the. Um, uh, the um, death in childbirth um, and childbirth, which mm -hmm. actually, which is crazy. This is a whole side tangent, which you, did, which you didn't plan into our notes here. Um, but, 
people used to like go from the morgue where people died of diseases straight into the childbirthing wards. Right. Without without, that, that was before washing yeah. hands was seen as a thing that you're supposed to do. Like there was a huge backlash. Right. It was like you should wash your hands when you're between patients, and and that was a huge backlash against that. The right. prevailing scientific uh, dogmas and medical um, practices were completely against that newfangled idea of washing hands <laughs> patients. Which, on the one hand, yes, bad, but even more bad if you're going from someone who just died of the plague and you go and exactly. birth somebody. <laughs> like pe people are going to be dying like a lot because of that people did. <laughs> Um, so just okay. stopping that on its own probably right. increased our, our <laughs> average lifespan by 20 years. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you reduce the infant mortality rate, that's going to drastically increase your your age. Yes, your average <laughs> lifespan. Yeah. Which, of course, you look back in antiquity, people weren't doing stupid stuff like that. So yeah. true. <laughs> There's there also actually targeted children. Actually, sure, that's but... kind of related. That would be kind of related because of the industrialization you had more people moving into the cities so yep. you ended up with these large batch things where you have mm -hmm. the same guy doing the morgue and he's right. got hundreds of thousands of people theoretically who are going to be dying every who would, may die every day it's and then you have to deal with those kinds of scales without killing each other in the process well and also like if you think of it if like your your little town or hamlet or whatever has like 10 families Mm -hmm. the chances of somebody dying during the same day that you have somebody else giving birth is really limited pretty unlikely now really. you move into and you a have, city and, where and midwifery is kind of a separate separate um right. tradition too from a lot of like the surgeons. exactly you have the local you have different people probably doing the two different things anyway so yeah. exactly but yeah. then you move into the city and now you have okay we need to get rid of hundreds of dead people every day <laughs> we need to have somewhere for these people to go and we need someone to look over them to see what they died from, that kind of stuff. And then obviously that's going to be the person who's trained in medicine who now, because you don't have the local unit, the local community to supply a midwife. Mm -hmm. Now he's also going to be the one who's delivering the children. Yeah. Yep. So it ends up with all kinds of problems. Unintended consequences of, <laughs> um, what was it? Oh, my mind is like urbanization. There it is. Urbanization, yeah, <laughs> I was like, true. I was like, cityization. No, not that one. The not other one. one. <laughs> <laughs> the cityifying of <laughs> you cityfied. All right, cityfied city folk. All right. So those are the three main components of the industrial revolution. The three things that uh, got out of Pandora's box and we had to put back in again. And that and and they're not unmitigated goods and they're not unmitigated evils either there's a lot of great stuff that comes to play you can you can do a lot more more efficiently when you use standardization in the fact in the factory system and external uses of power instead of just human power and using machines instead of hand tools like you can do a lot more that's why they invented these things and why they took i use power tools every day in my work and it's right. amazing because driving totally. screws by hand is a pain <laughs> it really is and it gives you carpal tunnel and your, and your wrist is terrible anyway oh a lot yeah, yeah <laughs> um and so i mean and, and, but then you can also like what are you using those things for is really what it comes down to we yes. talk about technology Technology is supposed to extend our humanity. It's supposed to make things more effective of what we're already doing. When it starts replacing things and messing up the fundamental operations of humans connected with humans, that's when things get problematic. So, like, yes, it's really great to have a sewing machine, ostensibly, 
but then you end up um, with all kinds of uh, societal impacts of not having people making their own clothes for themselves and you end up reducing the connection and relationship with people who are making your clothes. That's one side right. effect. But then you can look at, well, before we had to stab each other, now we could shoot each other. <laughs> so you can kill people more effectively. Is, is right. Which on the one hand, that's a power balancing thing so that people are more able to defend themselves. So that's kind of a cool thing. But it also means that we can like literally kill people by the billion now. Yes. Which is not necessarily a good thing. So, and yeah. It's a, again, it's one of those things that's a natural outpouring. We've been getting, as humans, we get better at killing each other. It's mm -hmm. what part of our sin nature and also part of, it's one of the effects of the fall that mm -hmm. we need to learn how to defend ourselves. And by doing that, we create new ways for evil people to cause evil. Yep. And that's one of the things is that evil people will do evil no matter what tools are available. The better tools they have available, the more evil they are capable of. Mm. But also the better tools that are available, the more that good people are able to defend themselves from evil. Right. So we can use technology to stop evil from happening and to create good. We can create, use these things to create beauty um, and goodness and truth. But we can't uh, have that capacity without also empowering evil at the same time. That's, like, that's why technology itself is a neutral thing on the whole. Yes. But... Taking in that balance of that neutrality, there are, again, unintended consequences that oftentimes we don't see at the time yes. of these longer term societal shifts and their impacts. So what we're exploring in this episode is some of those unintended consequences of the Industrial Revolution specifically. And mm -hmm. again, it'll sound at the end like we're ranting and saying this Industrial Revolution never should have happened. Um, and there are days when I think that. <laughs> <laughs> but... We're not saying that all these technologies are inherently evil, or that we are. We should, we are, if we could, we would rewind the clock back. But we can't. We can't rewind progress. What we do <laughs> to want be clear, to do is look neither of us are luddites. <laughs> right, neither of us are luddites. Yeah, which were literally people who were smashing things during the industrial revolution. <laughs> so things we are. About. Both of us are currently using electro uh, electronics to communicate yes. with each other and with yes. you over the internet. It, we, <laughs> we professionally and, live on these things, yeah. Um, in manufactured houses, it's a whole thing. <laughs> it's a whole thing, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's more about recognizing why things are the way they are. What right. are the unintended consequences? What are the, the the cons along with the pros? And then seeing, okay. Here is the mechanics of where things went awry. How can we mitigate the damage? Yes. How, how, how can, can we, what I like to say in my business, reconcile humanity and technology? How can we say, all mm -hmm. right, this is bad. Why and what can we do about it? Without what can I do to make it not? <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Because we're not saying, you know, ban all technology and run away into the hills and, you know, live with, you know, sticks and stones. Like, I mean, if you want to, sure, go ahead. I'd love to see more people do that because we need people who are outside the system to be able mm -hmm. to compare and contrast <laughs> so we can see what some of the breakdowns are. Um, so that that is actually useful for some people to do that, but not everybody. Um, that's not something I'm particularly personally called to. I mean, I, I feel tempted to it every once in a while, but I don't think that would be the best use of my responsibilities and my calling. Um, but I can, I can definitely cheer people on who want to do that. And learn from them because that's the benefit of it. But we're not saying everybody should go do that. So caveats, caveats, caveats. <laughs>
All right. What were the results of these three big changes, Robbie? <laughs> well. <laughs> According to Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> As per my detailed research. No, so the the results of this was one it gave a lot of freedom mm -hmm. that was one of the good results because what it ended up doing is it ended up despecializing kind of mm. we cr we created increased productivity because now anybody could produce anything yep kind of like uh the most easily. probably for, for right for i guess most of the world uh mcdonald's Anybody can go to McDonald's and learn how to make a burger at McDonald's. It's very simple because they make it very simple. It's an industrialized thing. You go in there, they can grab literally the most moronic dude and put him and he can make a burger. <laughs> because they have a little chart there with the pictures on it so we can grab one of these and two of those and three of those and make and congratulations, now you have a McBurger. <laughs> but... So it increased production and efficiency because now it didn't take years of training for someone to be able to make a car. Mm -hmm. What you got was 10 people with one week of training and, he, and now between the 10 of them, they can make a functioning car faster than one man can make a car who right. had 20 years of tra training. Yeah. So working a car, bit difficult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we increase production and efficiency, which means you end up with lower prices and more stuff available. Yep. Because, yeah, the more that an unskilled laborer can produce, the more production you pump into the economy. Yep. Which also results in improved wages because then people are actually able to work with better profit margins and can afford more to actually pay people more. Correct. <laughs> That also you end up moving more towards those places that actually can pay you more, or you can this need more true. people. Because yeah. if you, if you can if you have one person making something, he can just do it. But if you need ten people, you need a lot more people in a smaller area in order to actually make that work. Hence, exactly. Bum bum bum. Urbanization. <laughs> people <laughs> moving away from their homeland from the town in which they lived where you had the blacksmith and the carpenter and the plowman and the and the milk person and now you're all the way and they all move into city where yep. they can get a job at these massive new factories where they can get paid better wages it's and it what it ended up doing is now we have more people living close together a lot of unintended consequences there but no. So there's some a lot of there's a lot of awesome benefits from that. I mean, having being somebody who moved from a smaller city to a larger city to literally a city ten times the size of the previous um, city, um, just recently, the amount of opportunities for productive conversations for community for networking exponentially greater, exponentially greater. So there's a a lot of really cool benefits come from that because value comes from partnerships between people, right? You can get unique people who are aligned on a common goal, oriented around a common set of values, and they can go do amazing, amazing things. And yes. if you're by yourself in a small hamlet, then there's less likely that you're going to have is enough people to do a very niche major project because there's just not enough people to do it. Yeah. Whereas Gathering people. City, yeah. you, can always, you can always find enough people to do your niche thing if you're in a big city of 100,000 people. 
Yeah. Like, however, the example I, I like to use is like if you're wanting, if you like games and you're in a small town, you might be lucky if you can pull together a gaming club that then you were spread out across chess, checkers, backgammon, and then all the different board games, and then maybe include some video games. And you have one of the person you can play Magic the Gathering with in the corner, right? Right. <laughs> but if you're in a bigger city, you can have an entire club of 50 people who only play one variety of Magic the Gathering. <laughs> right. Now, if you go into a large enough city, uh, you know, a large enough community, then you end up also only talking with people who are basically clones of yourself, which is like the other extreme, yes. right? Right. One That was the part I was going to mention is that one of the things is you lose the diversity because you can... Because you can choose exact, you can um, you can choose precise precisely who you want and what you who what you want to hang out with and who you want to be with and what you want to do. You can curate your own interpersonal connection, which does end up turning into echo chambers because you end up only associating with people who agree with you and like the things you like and dislike the things you like. It removes one of the things it does is it removes that sense of community and that sense of balance where you have to interact with people who don't necessarily agree with you, who don't like you, who it removes that sense of um, interpersonal responsibility. And there because are ways in to the community, of course. this is true, but it made it a lot easier for yep. people to avoid that sense of interpersonal responsibility. Yeah, if you because have some more it, collision centers and networking events for me with people who are of different perspectives and deliberately seek them out, then you can kind of counterbalance that. But right. we don't typically it do takes that effort. Right. It takes <laughs> effort as opposed to it being forced upon you by the fact that there's the neighbor's son who doesn't agree with you on something and you two have to figure out how to work together. What yeah. it also did yeah. is it led to an increase in um moral uh divergency i guess would be mm. so basically you it's harder to hold someone accountable in a city versus in the country yeah because if there are only six families and little jimmy has a tendency to go out and break people's stuff and steal from people's crops mm. guess what everyone is going to know and little jimmy is going to hear about it because there you'll is see that in churches a, a lot too, where you have one yeah. church in town, you go to it, and if you don't like the church discipline, you kind of have to deal with it, or just leave church entirely. Whereas if you're in a bigger city, it's a lot easier if you just go. I'll just go over to the next Baptist church that's exactly the same as this one next door over, and um, screw y'all. <laughs> yes, and the, and part of the problem is right. There's no accountability. Because you might be excommunicated from the church you're at. Mm -hmm. And then the person, this has actually happened to one of the churches I we went to. Someone went from that church, they excommunicated him, and he immediately left, went to another church in town, and ended up getting hired as their youth group director or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> because there was no accountability. Because yeah. they didn't there was no there's no cross connection between the, between right. the communities there was yeah. right yeah. he was able to pretend he was an island unto himself and just wander off you can't do that yeah. if there's only you know 10 people 
Yeah, it makes the whole the and this conflict between um urban versus rural has had a has had a long history going all the way back to you know Kane, um who we yes. first city. <laughs> so it's not as much of an epochal change in the sense of how people invented cities, but for the first time in history, the huge locus of the the balance of how many people were in cities versus not in cities completely tipped and reversed and that changed a lot of things which we're going to come back again to that because um because that's one of the things we have on later on on our list but let's look at uh the first piece we talked about uh with increased production productivity and efficiency and get into that first that builds on to some of the other aspects of urbanization so oh, we got a bit ahead of ourselves a bit there i just realized <laughs> <laughs> we, we get excited about this topic so the automation at scale, right? This is a huge part. This this is derives not only this comes from all three components of the industrial revolution that we talked about using machines instead of hands, uh, using like because if you have a machine that um, is able to shuck ten years instead of one at a time, then yeah, you're doing more of less. And if you put it onto a machine that uses steam instead of a foot treadle. That's you know even more efficient, and then you can just have a bunch of people all lined up and it's running a bunch of them, and then you got the factory system going there, and it's way like exponentially multiple orders of magnitude um, more efficient, right? So you're able to do stuff more at scale, and it makes it a lot more efficient, which leads to prioritizing efficiency over relationships. And this is our major unintended consequence, at least that comes from this. Because while it's great to have more goods, in a sense, though we'll get into that at, at, in a bit, um, relationship is also incredibly powerful. And you might even say fundamental yes. to what it means to be human and Christian. If you look at this whole idea of standardization, as you mentioned earlier, you're losing that sense of individuality that comes with it, and therefore personalization and beauty get reduced. Um, you don't have these expressions of personhood and personality from one set of clothes to another. You're all stuck into off-the-rack clothes um, that don't reflect you specifically within the communities that you have and your unique body type. Um, you just kind of have to deal with whatever deviations from the average you are right and there's a lot of problems that come into this that whole aspect of sizing and how people get left out uh, in various ways and how you get forced into a particular um shape or body type just because that's what's just standard <clears throat> um that creates that whole problem basically um yeah which is a huge issue similarly yeah, the... go ahead go ahead just yeah the um loss of individuality and the idea of a maker's mark yeah the imprint of someone who put effort in their personal style and artistic interpretation and not only that but their own skill and work ethic into it mm -hmm. there used to be a thing where where craftsmen would put a stamp on whatever they made and you would be able to tell who had made it by looking at the item. And, it, and it, there was, a, there was again, a personalized that also, sense of accountability attached to that, like we were talking yeah, about earlier. Yeah, because if I signed my piece of work, 
and then it falls apart, guess what? That's a damage to my credibility. Yep. And it's, it's funny because, um, like, you'll talk, like, I would, um, every now and again, I'll get a clip on Facebook or whatever of a video of Pawn Stars or whatever. And this guy will bring in an ancient Japanese sword. And their sword guy will take off the handle and he'll read the markings on the back of it. He's like, oh, this guy, yes, he was a very famous and very good sword maker back 600 years ago. This sword is worth thousands of dollars. Then he breaks off another one. He's like, oh, yeah, this was an imitation of that famous guy's sword. It's not worth anything. The stamp <laughs> is wrong. The maker's mark is wrong because yeah. people were trying to imitate this guy who was known for his good work. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> And so the, that isolation, that moving away from custom work, from someone who takes pride in their work and making, making art in all of your work, mm -hmm. the idea of everything you do is a form of art and it's a form of glorifying God in your work. And now it's everything you do is just based on how many units you produce. Yep. And how fast and how efficiently you can do it. Because exactly. you don't have any personal plaque. If you do it badly, you know, you, you get fired and you have to go find somewhere else you can slot in. Um, mm -hmm. And then they get somebody else to do it. And the, and the maker mark hasn't changed. Right. Right. It's a whole different ballgame. Mm -hmm. One of the other, and along with that, you get this idea that people become parts that can be exchanged in that way. Because mm -hmm. uh, back before, you would have an artisanal tradition with a holistic set of skills that all interplay with each other. If you um, were a woodworker, there were a wide array of skills and tools and experiences that all came into that, as opposed to I hammer a peg into a hole, and that's the entire sum total of what I'm doing. Um, you have to be able to work with different kinds of woods, different kinds of tools, different kinds of challenges for different people. And there's a holistic set of um, skill sets that come into play with that. And it's not just as an individual person, it's an entire family and household that all share in the traditioning of that artisanal skill set down. So you might have one, like one, the father might be good at this particular part, and then his son might be a little bit more focused on this other aspect of it. And then the daughter might be focused on this other aspect of it. And then the uh, cousin or the grandfather, because it's, it's, it's a larger than just the nuclear family. Um, it's a whole household of people who are right. passing on these skills together to get a much more dimensioned, a much more robust uh, and complex and creative set of skills that get passed on, which you'll see that in like how we have family names being tied to a skill that are shared right. not by an individual person, but by a whole line. You had a Miller family, you had a Smith family. Right. What's your family? It's an entire group. Yep. And so what you'd have was that when you look at that in that contrast, you end up with this separation where instead of the locus of identity productively being the, the family and the household, your locus of identity gets shifted into the factory. And mm -hmm. that's where suddenly all the localization of those skills become centered. And so you can have one family, but five different entirely different artisanal trades back in the beginning when they still were closely resembling artisanal trades because they're all working at different factories right the factory became the focus of that 
But that also means like if you do poorly at the factory and you get fired, you can just go switch to a completely different one. That's where the people right. become the parts. They, the, the person becomes less than the- right. um, Not only the are the parts, not only are the parts re-interchangeable, re but the people become. Because yeah. within two weeks, you can be a functional factory worker yep. at yep. any factory. Which ultimately dehumanizes people, which leads yeah. to a lot of the abuses that can play. Instead mm -hmm. of a craftsman being a highly regarded uh, master who was looked up to and respected, it became a drudge work. Right. Um, and now vocational school um, trades are fighting to even be recognized as an even as a viable option outside of uh, the particular skill sets that are in vogue currently, which are you know the intellectual white collar type stuff. Yes. Not everybody's cut out for it. It's just that's just no. And yeah. <laughs> it's interesting the that turning away from the God created way where it's God created us to be trained from your childhood on to learn how to do something. Jesus was a carpenter and he didn't do that because he, after he graduated from high school, he went and spent three years learning as an apprentice carpenter to learn how to be. No, he was a carpenter because his father was a carpenter and from the time he could help carry wood from the time he could grab his father's tools. He was helping with the family trade. Mm. And there's a level of, I don't know. Oh, I forget which one it was. Um, there was a Malcolm Gladwell book I was listening to and it was talking, uh, might've been the tipping point or outliers, outliers. That's yeah. one where it was talking about the 10, the 10,000 hours. Mm -hmm. 10,000 hours is that right yeah. yeah basically if you work at anything for 10,000 hours you will become a master at it mm -hmm. if you practice anything for 10,000 hours you become a master at it it's just quality of practice of course but yes right <laughs> and but the thing is if you start practicing something when you're eight years old 10,000 hours happens a lot sooner than if you don't ever if you never touch the trade you're going to work on in your life until you're 18 20 24 now 28 years old because we keep on pushing it off down the line because there's, there's two big huge aspects to this that are just huge tragedies in today's society uh one is that you graduate from college you still have no idea what you're doing right you have no sense of right. identity as far as your vocation right and you're just like set adrift and you're just kind of wandering around trying to pick different things and you end up um, most of the time settling into a career that has nothing in common with what you majored in. So you spent, you know, the first uh, 22 years of your life not preparing for the thing you're doing. <laughs> right. Uh, it's not in a practical, direct sense. Um, mm -hmm. which is, in fact, actually, it's the majority. I think it was like 60 at least or 70% of people getting a job out of college um, get a job that has nothing to do with their major. Remember, right? Right. That it's really changed. It's insane. It's just insane. Like how much, the amount of money you're pouring into that and the amount of debt you're saddling yourself with and how much, you know, literal slavery you're getting into with that. And you're not even using it. Yes. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Um, but then at the other hand, and this is something I see in the tech industry, because everybody gets pushed into tech industries nowadays. Like everything, even if it's not tech. It, Learn to code. It's still, <laughs> it's, it's still, it's still tech. You know, they're just all using it in some way. Right. Everything this is part of the digital revolution, but it started here in the industrial revolution. Um, is that 
people normally change complete career paths like every five, three, I mean, every five or so years. If you are in, you know, actual coding and whatnot, it might even be every three years or so. You're completely reskilling. Um, and it's just insane, like how frequently you have to change careers in order to stay alive because your invent new career lines are being invented and then destroyed so fast that right. nothing is actually sticking around long enough to actually build a 20 year career career in. They just don't last right. long enough to do that. So you no one up. is able to be a become a master craftsman at it be just right. because the industry is changing so rapidly. Yep. And so you don't have this this thing where you have a durable trade where people have been doing this for literally thousands of years, accumulating wisdom and knowledge through hard won experience and developing this, you know, deep knowledge of a wide array of uh, beautiful arts. And in contrast to it completely being created and destroyed in 18 months, like that's just ridiculous as far as a contrast yeah. goes. But what's, what's, what's astonishing with that is that all of these older hand traditions are being lost. And that's, mm -hmm. that's the huge trade because these are handed hand to hand. They aren't things that you can learn in a book. It learn is a thing that you learn from a person in a family, right? That's, and people aren't doing them, so there's not enough demand for them, and so people aren't learning them, and they're dying. Um, they're they're getting lost, and right. that is a huge tragedy. We're basically taking away the entire cumulative um, development of the human race, and it's like, oh, we don't need that anymore. <laughs> like the, the arrogance of that is just mind blowing. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so this all comes into play with as part of this whole adoption of this factory system and incorporating it into the fundamental you know, warp and woof of our society, where people are becoming the parts that can be exchanged. And then we're putting the factory as the locus of power instead of the household, uh, which, you know, nowadays everybody complains about corporations being the ones who are controlling everything. This is where it started. This is where that started. It's right here. Right here. Right. So that's that was the, that's the first big unintended consequence. <laughs> um, moving on to uh, that whole aspect of lower prices, more goods, improved wages, and so more stuff. Yeah. More things, because all you need is lots more stuff. <laughs> yeah. Veggie <laughs> uh, tails, top tier stuff. <laughs> yeah, but one of the unintended consequences due to the vast boom of available goods, because the production went up, so available goods went up. We ended up switching to a consumption focus. It's built, it's so ubiquitous now that we don't even think about it mm -hmm. but it's throughout the whole thing we have like the consumer price index it's a consumer <laughs> it's interesting because we're so used to being considered called consumers that we don't think of just how weird that is What's the alternative that we are to that? Yeah. defined as just something that eats it that eats yeah. stuff <laughs> and you think about that on a on a spiritual level right right um, you think about things in terms of what the Bible and Christian tradition has looked at as 
our passions and our appetites. Yes. Right. These are the things that drive our craving for consumption, our, our passions, our appetites. And these are the basal fleshly aspects of our being. These are the aspects of us that are not inherently, it's not evil to eat or drink, right? Because we think as a eat or drink, do all the glory yes. of God, right? right? But those things have to be subordinated under the spirit, which right. is These, focused on it's literally it's literally the least important part of you, which yes. is funny because that's literally how we define ourselves. Yeah. Like anytime you talk to someone, it's their consumptions, it's their desires that they define themselves up. Even with this um, modern sexual revolution mm-hmm. madness, the people define themselves as gay or they because define they themselves as a particular ah, style, they, kind of right. person. Like right. you're defining it's, yourself completely by your appetite. Right. I'm defining myself by what I want. I am a gamer. That means I want games. I consume games. I'm, And that whole defining yourself by what you want is an unintended consequence of this industrial revolution yep. where production, having that increased production, we also need increased consumption in order to make it worthwhile. Because, because you have this focus if, away from being a craftsman, the focus on instead of being what I make and what I contribute to the world and what family and household I am loyal to and all these aspects of identity, it's now focused. You don't have as focused on that. It's focused on these people who are producing things because you're right. focused in, you know, on the factory and the company in that way. So you end up being just exactly. someone who devours someone who right. constantly consumes your whole worth in this, in this, um, in this society is based on how much stuff you consume, what your, what your gross consumption is, which is ties into a whole bunch of economic stuff. It is terrible for the economy <laughs> because the economy is defined by consumption when people save money. Yep. So that's you, the thing is like Adam Smith at the beginning of this whole saving. thing is part of this. And it was still back at his time was still had a focus on making versus consuming but it was still laying this foundation for this kind of economics that's focused on consumption. Um, and so old school capitalism is like, I think I, f- I really feel very different from what we see as capitalism now, where you've matured this place of absolute focus on consumption as the primary economic goal. Right. It's kind of gone sour. Yeah. <laughs> the milk has gone sour on capitalism. Yeah. Capitalism is still the best, one of the best systems we have. <laughs> what was that? Can we modify that? Was it G.K. Chesterton? Is it like, you know, democracy is the best form of government except for all, is the worst form of government except for all the others? Um, um, I think it was, was it. Is that, is that him or Churchill? Yeah, I was thinking it was Churchill, where it was like, I forget. Yeah, yeah, democracy is the best form, is the it's worst the, form the worst of government except, except, the others, yeah. except for all the other ones that we've yeah. ever tried. Which, we, which you can say that same thing with capitalism. Capitalism is the right. worst kind of economics except for all the other ones. <laughs> right. And I, as I've always talked about capitalism, capitalism, the reason it works is it pits, is it takes into account sin nature and it pits my greed against your greed. So it balances out. Mm-hmm. If it's if it's lawful capitalism, basically what it's saying is my desire to make money and succeed and build wealth is now balanced against your desire. So if I try too hard, I'm going to end up infringing upon you. So you're going to pull back. 
that's the balances, the checks and balances. You're, you're the... tricking selfish people to be to behave as if they were altruistic, effectively. Exactly. That's how exactly. capitalism. On that's the, the whole. In theory, is great, um, but it also disincentivizes in many ways some of the natural altruism in a sense. Which that's right. not to say that people who are rich don't give money. That's always the argument against that. That people which is hilariously give, wrong. Yeah. Just like statistically speaking, is so off. It's. <laughs> Yeah, it's comical. Rich people give lots of money, yes, but still, what's on the whole, they never quote this, stats when they talk about so that. It has an issue. This is still an issue here. But <laughs> there are issues, but there are other issues with other things. Yeah, and exactly. The whole problem is that once you shift that idea throughout the whole Bible, you never get this idea that you are defined by how much you consume. Actually, the whole idea of that is. <laughs> Knocked off. Um, Jesus, when talking about the rich man who yeah. has reaping his fields and runs out of room in his barns, and he says, I will tear down these barns and build bigger barns. That's and then I will live you. and be right. I will I will live, I will eat, drink, and be merry, for I have much wealth. And yeah. I think I might be fudging the quote a little bit, but it's the Lord will say, um, oh, what was it? Um well, it starts off with thou Foolish. fool, I believe. Right. Oh, you fool. Do you not know that today your soul will be required of you and who will inherit this great wealth you, that you have acquired? Yeah. The idea of consuming and just gathering goods to yourself is directly against it. And when you go through Proverbs, <laughs> the idea of saving is encouraged, but not hoarding. It, in fact, yeah. anytime it, it talks a about a miser or a penny pincher, it's always in a bad sense. Someone who is obsessed, who lets wealth and consumption define their lives is not a good thing. But what being it does wise say is that it elevates this idea of being an artisan, someone who is yes. skillful in craft, right? In, in Proverbs 22, 29, uh, it says, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. So this idea of someone who is skillful in his work, someone who glorifies God in his labor, is elevated, is revered. Um, it's part of glorifying God. It's one of the ways, most practical ways that we can in our day-to-day -day life glorify God is by honoring him in each thing we do, being present, intentional, and having integrity in each act that we do, creating something yes. beautiful that aligns with truth and is for the good of others, right? All of these things can be done in craftsmanship. It's really freaking hard to do that as a widget maker. Yes. It's hard if you're working in a factory to put your skill in to try to glorify God in your work. You can still do it in your relationships and in your interactions with people, but it's hard to do that when all your job is is to press a button 16 times every, every day or something or to push this, move that, carry, set this over there. If you're basically doing the job of a robot, it's there's a it takes a lot more intentionality and it's a lot harder to do well yep and, and in a way that's notably specifically explicitly glorifying to god yeah yes not impossible but yes um you can do everything to glorify god even be a robot yes um, yes. <laughs> but, yes even robots yeah. glorify god if they do the way do what god wants them to do <laughs> But do they mean that they do? To uh, no. some Hopkins <laughs> <Dawkins> there. <laughs> yeah. All right. So now, so those are the two main ones that 
And then the automation at scale leading to prioritizing efficiency of the relationship. Um, and I do want to highlight in there, um, as we're circling back, we've got consumption focus and, and versus craftsmanship. Um, and then the next one is urbanization. Um, so those three main components, automation, consumption, and urbanization, three main components. There's one thing I wanted to highlight um, in the automation piece um, about how uh, God himself, when you look at his sets of priorities, right? Yeah. You ask, if you, if you, if you look at how God works in creation and in our lives, and you ask him, do you prioritize efficiency or relationship? Right. <laughs> I highly doubt you're going to get efficiency as an answer. Efficiency is not really one of God's priorities. Um, he works through us. So any, I mean, everything that he does, like he could just do on his own, just like immediately miraculously was like, positively pop, here's the thing. But instead of doing that, he deigns, he bows down, he works with us and allows us to be included in his works on the earth, right? That's incredibly inefficient. Like we're really bad at stuff, particularly compared to God, right? <laughs> so if you want to do things efficiently, he wouldn't do that. <laughs> But he values our relationship with him. He wants us to develop a relationship with him. And that's more important. So he includes it. It's like, it's like a mom who, of course, she could wash the dishes and sweep the floor way more efficiently by herself. But yes. she wants to teach her toddler and have them learn as, and develop a relationship with her in doing these things for their own good. Right? Right. So... She works with them, takes 10 times as long and, and it gets, you know, done, you know, half as good or less as when mm -hmm. she would do it, but they've developed a relationship and that, and that human is a better human now because of it. That's how God designs things to work in our lives, in our relationships. And right. this is the exact opposite of that paradigm. Whenever mm -hmm. we increase more efficiency, we are doing so at cost of relationship. You see this globalization of food. Um, you see the globalization of all these different industries um, where you don't actually know all these different people. Right. So I want to, I want to go back. I, I didn't want to miss that particular point. I think it's really key. Um, and then we'll go mm -hmm. back into the uh, urbanization aspects and some of the, some of the impacts there, which we already touched a little bit on, but uh, go a little bit more in depth here now that we've kind of laid some of these foundation pieces. So, okay. Which that actually ties right into this, into the yes. urbanization. The yes. fact that urbanization, by its very nature, is going to cause you to move away from that. Which is ironic. And, yes. <laughs> you think more people in one spot are being more relationships and more community. Right. Yeah, that doesn't happen. Not, 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 no. not this way. No. The more people you get together... the more ironically isolated you end up being because yeah. there's no forced connection. There's more autonomy. There's more, um, oh, what is it? An anonymity in cities. Mm -hmm. If you ever want to disappear, just move into an apartment complex. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And so cities have this problem where 
by the very by nature of having so many people so close together it you go from being an individual to just one of a crowd there's the old saying where um what is it one death is a tragedy but a million deaths is a statistic yes and the whole idea of once you get too many people our brains just kind of shut down and go into autopilot or we like don't acknowledge anything anymore it's like we don't know what to do about it this is something that um uh there's this quote from c.s lewis that i found a while back about how there's a problem when we are constantly inundated with all of the bad news from around the entire world and this is what he was in his time period much less (laughs) that was before the internet um, <laughs> um so he probably like you know we, what news really should do is connect us with what we can actually do something about like right. if i hear about somebody who is having a financial hardship and they're living next door i can go walk over and hand them some money i can right. if i don't have money i can sit down with them and cry with them right i can go take care right. of their kids while they're going to work right i can whatever mm-hmm. right you can right. go do something about it. But when you're hearing about all of the woes of the entire world constantly, you get fatigued because there's not anything that you can actually do about all of it that has a meaningful, tangible impact that you can actually see. Exactly. And so it's just one, depressing. <laughs> um, but two, it distances you from these kinds of things. And so people who are actually hurting next to you, you stop seeing it and you stop doing anything about it because it just gets lumped in with everything else. With all these mm-hmm. other problems, and you're more apt. And this is by this is operating by default. I'm not saying everybody does this, and God bless you for the, those of you who don't do this. I try always to be one people who don't do this, but to be more inclined to say, "Stop whining." Other people have it worse than you. Instead of saying, "How can I help you?" Right. You know. Right, and that's a, and that's just generally going to happen. We see it like macro level with the policies the more big city the more bigger a city is the more it's going to tend to stop whining about it well the why isn't the city taking care of this as opposed to personal responsibility we shift to communal responsibility as opposed to personal responsibility Mm -hmm. and yeah it kind of all goes downhill from there I can't really do communal responsibility if I'm living out in the country and it's five houses close together. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like, why isn't Jim or Fred doing anything about your problem as opposed to me? It feels a lot more, you know. And then again, that ties back into, well, if I'm always shirking responsibility out in the country, guess what? Everyone's going to know. (laughs) And there are going to be social consequences for me not doing my duty. Ta, duty, honor, that kind of stuff. Cool. All that kind of stuff. (laughs) So yeah, so you end up um, breaking down these smaller units that are actually more human-sized, and by conglomerating them together, it actually breaks people down and makes them more atomized. So you're atomizing society. And then instead of people collecting with each other based off of community relationships, it becomes more focused on your wages, which is basically the one constant when you're being swapped in and out from different factories um, and this kind of stuff. Um, one other aspect to this that I hinted at in the consumption piece um, in, the, in these relationship breakdowns is supply chains. 
when things get globalized, right? Which is far right. more efficient on the one hand, right? Um, uh, the macro scale, like it's hyper efficient to do these kinds of things. Um, what you end up with is a huge long sequence of people that you don't ever actually know. And they become one more vulnerable, a lot of the um, uh, Panama Canal incident recently, <laughs> or COVID, right. um, throwing a ton of wrenches in all of the all the cogs and everything, uh, makes them more vulnerable, which is what people are realizing now. But uh, it also makes it more divorced from accountability, at least direct accountability in the biblical sense. Market right. forces, like you were saying earlier, keep people in check to a degree you lose money if you don't if you become a bad actor in a sense as long as you don't as long as you don't get away if you can't get away with it then cheating actually does pay uh, <laughs> by definition right um but instead of relying on good relationships and honor you're relying on market forces uh for keeping things connected and working because you can't have relationship working at these long distances so right. this is something that um you know i grew up thinking about in terms of uh, from a libertarian perspective and you know loving the free market economy all that kind of stuff which i still do i think that's you know free market economy is the best way to, to run an economy um but i also think it should be local um and have local accountability rather than um these global structures and right. part of that is illustrated with a old libertarian tract basically called i pencil um which <laughs> it's a classic it's great makes a really good point Basically, the idea is it's narrated from the perspective of a pencil who's describing how one individual person could never actually make a modern pencil on their own by hand, right? Uh, all the different pieces that come into play, all the all the, the stuff that goes into making the rubber, uh, the making the metal piece to go around it, being able to get to the wood and plane it down just right, and then all the complicated aspects that go into getting the graphite and the machining it down so it goes into it. And then all the different pieces that go down. I mean, you could you could cobble together a thing that does the same thing as a modern pencil and call it pencil. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You can pick a stick and then you can stick some stuff in the end of it and make it draw, right? Sure. But you can't duplicate a modern pencil by yourself. The supply right. chain, all the elements that go into it span the globe. The fascinating thing is that nobody who actually works together in order to make that pencil actually really know each other. They often hate each other. They have no point of agreement except for the fact that they all want money. Right. They want <laughs> to, you know, work and serve and do these things, right? Um, they might even be at war with each other. And yet they still are collaborating enough by means of all these extra steps to be able to reduce the result of the pencil, even though they don't even know that that pencil exists at the end of the line, probably. Um, so you can get this pencil, which is a you know, a good in a sense, um, literally. It's called a, a good. Um goods and services and so on <laughs> um <laughs> uh you get result with it despite all of these people not actually knowing each other which is kind of the right. miracle of industrialization right the thing is though is that now you don't have relationships right you don't have all these things and so like for things like pencils and cell phones like because you can't make a cell phone locally in a village like, this is not going to work um no <laughs> not, with, not with all the rare earth metals that you need for that uh, so, for, so for so certain things, that's fine. But one of the things I want to point out is like for food or clothing um, as well. I'll, I'll get into that more in a bit. Like 
these things are things that you want relationships attached to. These are things that you want to be resilient, that you want to be localized, that you want to be artisanal, that you want to have personalized instead of this massive um, chain that's going all over the entire world. Um, you need to have this element in pr present in our culture in some ways, at least, at least alongside the globalist forces um, in order to keep some element of our humanity around, um, to be right. able to keep these relationships alive in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a need to be able to connect with these things. Yeah. Build relationships in your they're, life. They're part of what it means to be human. Um, yep. Like these are deeply symbolic, deeply sacred things in, in, in a lot of very true ways. I, I, I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that. Um, being able to authentically connect with other people over food includes the making of that food. Mm -hmm. uh, when you look at the things that have defined societies, defined communities, defined relational identity throughout all of time and space, you see certain things that crop up everywhere. People have a ethnic cuisine because they grow certain things from the ground, what's available to them in that climate and that culture, and then they make certain recipes with that, and that shapes how they eat it, the tools they use to eat it with, the ways and the traditions around the dining table are shaped by that. And then by the way they trade with other nations for the same thing. You can define a nation by its food. Similarly, its clothes, by the kinds of weather that they live in right there, and the kinds of uh, values they have in their culture and society are reflected in their clothes, and the different roles people play in their society are reflected in their clothes and the kinds of things that they can grow from the ground and shear from their sheep and so on are reflected in the kinds of fibers they have available to make clothes with and in the kinds of plants that you use to stain those clothes depends what kind of color palette they have to work with in their designing their fashion right like it's deeply tied into the ground that is the body of a nation in so many ways right so mm -hmm. all of these things are like deeply tied to what it means to be a people Right. And the people that serves God or wars with God both have this in common that they are defined by these things and they're shaped and they're unified by these things. And when you break it apart and spread it out and globalize it, you're destroying that element of um, unification. You're stripping us of this ability to connect. Um, and it becomes something that's all about you and what you personally want or desire and become centered in your passions and your appetites rather than in community. Because yeah, mm -hmm. that's the other option. That's the next most powerful thing in our psyches. So instead of dressing based off of what is being made for you in your village and providing a place for you in your village, it's now, how do I express my own personal individuality and my own appetites and passions? Which is a much meaner and lower way to use clothing. Yeah. So. Yes. In light of all of these things <laughs> and stuff we've Pick been talking about. Destroy technology. <laughs> take a mallet and smash your local sewing machine or something. Like that. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> all right. Now I don't have a podcast. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
yes, you should move, and we will all discuss this in person in the next <laughs> episode. Yeah. Well, the next episode of the North Brass Podcast will be held in person, <laughs> either in Fargo or in Oklahoma, whichever one happens to be. Whichever happens to be closest to No, so what are... So we've talked what, about what like we, some yeah. of the good things and some of the bad things and some imperatives we've kind of touched on some of these things but what is what are ways that we can apply this yeah because that's what the praxis what's the how do we mitigate the problems (laughs) yeah well how do we mitigate the problems while we take advantage of the blessings that came as part of this industrial revolution yeah so the first thing when you make a thing make it for a person keep your connections close what when you make something you should put yourself into it mm-hmm. you should put your skills and your gifts and your talents and who god made you into what he made you to do and find ways of inserting that into your work think about the person you're making it for think honor about how you can honor them and bless them with whatever this is that you're doing if you're, again, working at McDonald's, think about the person you're making this burger for and try to make obvious. it to Use honor your imagination. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, try to make this so if somebody sees what you've made, they think, wow, that was made by somebody who cared. And that that can apply to literally anything you do. Everything. Yeah. And find a way of making that a reality when you're working on your computer and you're creating this graph, try to think of how you can bless the person you're making this for. How can I honor this person and make this in such a way that they see my good work and glorify my father who's in heaven? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that's the first thing. The other Take thing pride is in to, honoring your work. Yeah. The, the other thing is to try and shorten that supply chain more. Uh, create more be, be more relational in the things that you do buy make locally um, one of the ways I, I like to put that is like feed the organism that you're a part of um, if you are buying from someone that's local you're not just you know sticking it to the man institutionally or whatever you're not just you know um, you know fighting against the corporations you're actively um, making the organism of the community that you are a part of stronger and more healthy you don't buy out of spite buy to bless the person who you're purchasing from connect with the person at your local farmer's market 100 percent. so there's various ways you can do that and different things you can prioritize so what i advocate for in helping to shorten that supply chain um is one again you know buying from people who are making things locally um but also learning skills and then contributing to that local uh, infrastructure, network, that local network of buyers and makers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you learn a direct skill, you're shortening that supply chain significantly, right? Because now you are a new node in the system that people can access without having to go to somewhere across the country, across the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's two particular categories that I personally prioritize, and I think it's biblical to do so. So when you look at Paul and he says that, and he defines poverty 
Uh, so that's the way I look at it when he says that uh, when you have food and raiment, therewith be content, right? Uh, to me, that really defines the poverty level. Like, if you have those two things, be content. That's enough. That's adequate. So everything above that is middle class. This is the way I look at it. <laughs> um, it doesn't include, like, land ownership. It doesn't include uh, freedom from slavery, even. That doesn't include a lot of things. It definitely doesn't include internet. Um, and doesn't include medical access. It doesn't include a lot of things. It includes food and it includes clothing. That's it. Um, those are the two fundamentals, right? And in so mm -hmm. many ways, I see that as like I mentioned, like some things that are, that are sacred. Like these are things that we need to connect with each other in community and relationship. Um, but there's a lot of effort nowadays to work towards local farmers markets and people growing their own food. There's a whole thing back in I was I think it was World War II. World War One, the Victory Gardens, um, mm -hmm. where people were encouraged to go grow their own food because that was more effective uh, for being able to survive uh, the economic straits of the war. Um, do that. Go start a Victory Garden. Like 100%, go do that thing. Um, that's super important. And go to the farmers markets and buy those things. Right. The funny thing I find interesting is that not many people are doing that for clothing. Like you have people who are making their own clothing but it's typically cosplay or history bounding where people are costuming in period and historical attire um on their own basis they're like there's like an online community that connects them together and you can learn on youtube and all these kinds of things which is great but mm -hmm. they're not doing it in community locally not in the same way you do for the farmer's market you don't have like half a dozen people who are all making clothes and swapping or making clothes for each other and doing it together. That's not, I haven't seen that being as much of a thing yet. Not nearly as much as farmer's markets, at least. Um, right. And typically it's, a, it's, it's like I said, it's a cosplay thing. And there's elements of trying to reenact the past. And, and some people do it because of health issues. Some people do it because they just think it's more comfortable, which I agree is, is better um, to make some, wear something that fits you instead of something that's off the rack that doesn't fit you. Um, or out of um, fabrics and uh, materials that are um, more uh, more beneficial, more healthy, uh, better for the uh, ground and so on, and for the environment and so on. But also um, countering the whole fast fashion debacle that is going on right now in the clothing industry. It is absolutely horrific. I won't go into it, mm -hmm. but if you just Google fast fashion and its problems, you'll be horrified. It's 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 a mess. Um, and the more you look at it, the worse it gets. I, I kid you not, it's bad. Anyway, um, so you'd be working against that, you know, in your, in your own little way. But um, what really needs to happen is that this is not something about rewinding and going back and, and un trying to undo progress, right? That's, that's not the thing that we're talking about. We need to have clothing that is ethical, that is Christian, that is biblical, um, and that is made in community. That's something that right now, as far as I know, except for if you're living in like Amish communities or you're in Hutterite community or you're or in some other, you know, commune focused um, religious sect, that doesn't exist really. Um, and that is a tragedy. And I want to see that happen more. I'm, gonna, I'm working to try and do my part towards that somehow, but it's baby steps, but it's a lot of people making those baby steps that are going to make that happen um, to be able to turn the tide on uh, on this so this is just kind of my soapbox making a little bit of a uh activist call for people to rebel against 
the globalization of the clothing industry and start making your own clothes. Like yeah. Do it and just do it with people, with people, honor each other with the clothing mm-hmm. for each other. And I think that would not only, I have a, a spiritual intuition on this, that I think that that would also heal some other things that we have in our sexual um, breakdowns in our society. Mm. There's something about making clothes for each other and clothing each other that seems to like line up that might provide some deep healing in some ways for our society. I don't know. I don't know. But I just have I have I have an instinct there that I think it might huh. be helpful in some ways. So that's also desperately needed. So if if, if it helps, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> it can't hurt. Right? <laughs> it can only benefit you. Right. And these are things that are worth spending some money on because <laughs> Consuming as much as you can is not what God created you to do. God created you to glorify him and to build relationships with others and to use those relationships to glorify him, to glorify him in your work and in what you use your money for. Yep. So this is a noble and honorable hobby. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a holistic view of the world, a view of a world under the dominion of God and under the dominion of Christ. So if you would like to uh, comment or let us know what you think or let us know about other thoughts that you had on the Industrial Revolution, how it's changed life, if you have anything like that. Or if you want to share resources on how to make your own clothes. (laughs) Ooh, that would be really helpful. (laughs) Join us on Discord. Um, We have an app. We the discord you can come in join and we'll have a conversation there Mm -hmm. uh we're on facebook let us know what you think and whatever you do whether you eat or drink do it all for the glory of god